Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Today, a living legend of the diamond industry, a man who's been a key element in the discovery and development of Australia's three only diamond mines, including the famous Argyle Mine. with one of Australia's wealthiest individuals. He's the the head of a very significant and well-known Australian family. And the interesting thing that uh, just sparked my imagination was when he told me that they were so defensive inside this family that they've decided for the next foreseeable future, they have gone to 80% cash in their investments. But the other 20%, interestingly, had been put into, into gold, which I kind of understood, and we've spoken on this podcast about gold on a number of occasions. But the other thing he said is, there's part of it has gone into diamonds. Now, that to me makes a bit of sense, because gold and diamonds are stores of value that clearly, if times get tough, they do retain that store of value, almost like a monetary unit, if you like. But then there's something else that I knew about, and that is that if you're thinking about diamonds right now as an investment, one of the great investments is a pink diamond from the Argyle Diamond Mine. And having done a number of stories about this with suggestions that the Argyle Mine may close sometime later this year, and it has been the producer of most pink diamonds in the world, and then consider that only one of 10,000 diamonds found of all diamonds is coloured. And of those, really less than 1% is going to be a pink diamond. So you're really talking about a one in a million diamond is pink. And so that's the reason why pink diamonds from the Argyle mine have been so valuable as a store of value and collectible over a long period of time. So then in talking with a few friends, I suddenly came across a man called Ewan Tyler that many of you won't know about, but should know about. Ewan Tyler is right now about to turn 92 as I speak with him, and he's regarded as the father of Australia's diamond industry. A graduate in 1949 from the University of West Australia in geology, his imagination was sparked about the prospect of there being some kimberlitic material, which is the diamond-bearing material, in Western Australia but 3,000 kilometres north of Perth in that area around the Argyle Mines. He didn't have a direct route there. He, in fact, went to South Africa first. But his story of the way in which not only was the Argyle Mine found, but also then on top of that, the Ellendale Mine and others, is just quite an astonishing tale. I managed to track down Ewan Tyler at the very youthful age of 91, about to turn 92, and he joins me now. Ewan, many thanks for your time. Hi, how are you? Very well, and it's just a a wonderful thing to have a chat to you. I want to start off and go back to 1949. You're at university in Western Australia. 
What at that time, as a budding geologist, what sparked your imagination to think that diamonds were the thing that you wanted to go out and find? It wasn't that way at all, actually, Ross. I started off in Western Australia thinking I'd get a job in WA. But in 1949, there was no no work for geologists in WA. So I had to make a journey to Africa. And I found myself working in East Africa, actually, not very far from where Williamson's diamond mine was, at a place called Gaita, where I was mining gold. I went there as the assistant geologist, although I was assisting no one. And I ended up there after 10 years as the underground manager. During that time, I had contact with the people that were running the, not the De Beers mine, they didn't own it at that stage, but the Williamson's diamond mine. So I had a bit of a flavor of diamonds from that day. But prior to coming to Australia, I was in Sarawak. When I was a young 12-year-old, I was in the jungle with my father, and I found myself panning a doolang, or one of those conical Chinaman hats, for looking for cinnabar, actually. And the Chinese chap who was with me, Ah Jin, he said, Tuan Kichi, that little master, that is a diamond in the bottom of your pants. So I do have a sort of diamond connection going back a long way. But it was really Rex Prider at the university who inspired me to think about diamonds and, and to go back to Australia after a further 10 years in London with London money to start exploring four diamonds in West Australia. Because Rex Prider had been at Cambridge during the Depression and had produced a paper that likened the Kimberlitic rocks or the volcanic rocks in the West Kimberley district in WA with the Kimberlite rocks from South Africa. And that was really what triggered the start of the of what we call the Columbaroo joint venture. But it was a different material, Ewan, as I understand. It's called lamproite. Can you just describe the fundamental difference between lamproite and what's in South Africa, which is the, the genuine Kimberlite, which is generally what people are after when they're trying to find diamonds? Oh, that's a very complicated petrological understanding. And really, the, the olivine lamproite is, is in, in Professor Price's words, is consanguineous with the Kimberlites in South Africa and in East Africa, in fact, because I wasn't ever in South Africa in the diamond business. I was in South Africa for many other things, but not diamond. But it's a petrological difference. The, the lamproite has, has more chromite in it, got the, um, the lucite that goes into the lamproite, the proper lamproite that Rex Prider described. It's quite, a, it's quite a different rock, but I grew up in a world where rocks containing diamonds were always classified as kimberlite. And I've, I've never been a petrographer, and part of me always thinks that we've invented this olivine lamproite as a sort of way of dodging the column. Tell me, you come back to Australia with London money in 1969, and you head for the Kimberleys. Just explain the Kimberleys and the region. It would have been pretty rugged times. It's often very hot there. Um, Just explain the conditions you were working under. Well, it it started again up in the Kimberleys, A, with Prider, having these rocks in the West Kimberleys. But that was the real thing that made me start our search in the Kimberleys because of that. But then at the same time, in, in the 1969, I came back to Australia in 69, and in 1968, 68, there had been pot, people pottering for diamonds in Australia. In fact, De Beers had been established in Australia in Stockdale prospecting for some years before I actually came back. In 1969, we produced our first report 
or Mick Paltridge commissioned our first report. He was my manager in West Australia, the first report on Diamond Search in the Kimberley district. And he commissioned a chap called Chris Smith, who became very famous in the Argyle story, to, to write the, the first proposal with this um, exploration proposal to search 196,000 square kilometres of the Kimberley district in West Australia for diamonds by a helicopter-borne system going around and sampling on a very broad network and collecting gravel samples from all the creeks in his report and uh, landing in a helicopter and collecting these eight kilogram samples. We started the exploration program. The first problem, of course, was to finance it. I had very limited money from London for any, to engage anything on such a scale. So I had to create a joint venture. Joint ventures were fashionable in those days. And I managed to pull together five separate corporations, three of which were overseas and two of which were Australian. And then we started in, in 1972. We started with the helicopters to go out and collect these, I think there were 1,600 eight-kilogram samples over that field season. We did it all in one season. Then, of course, we had to build some facility to examine the material that we got because there was no such facility available in Australia. So we designed, or Chris designed, or started to instruct a couple of geologists, one of which was Maureen Muggeridge, another was Rob Mosig, um, and that's a, a Norman mining connection, which is another part of the story. But, I mean, they were instructed and started to look at the concentrates that had been made from these gravel samples, and on the evening of my 45th birthday, the 23rd of August, 1973, one of Maureen's samples, M109, produced a diamond, which Rob had been looking at and wondered what it was. Chris Smith had a look down the microscope and said, my God, that's a diamond. Just explain so the, the reaction story. to when you found the first diamond. So we're now talking, you've, you've arrived back in 1969. We're four years on, so four years of searching, four years of helicopters, of raising money, of trying to, try yep. to grab this thing and hold on to it. It's almost like a, like a tiger to try and grab it and hang on to it. And you suddenly Where come up with come your first... Where did it come from? Where did it come from? So this is the key, isn't it? Because there's alluvial diamonds and there's clearly the, the, the diamonds that are in the pipes. But the alluvial diamonds, like alluvial gold can move downstream and so it can be a long way away from the source so you're always looking for the source aren't you Uh, particularly a diamond can travel almost infinite distances but nevertheless there was something unique about this diamond because in in Maureen's sample not only was this diamond there but there was a whole suite of what we call kimberlite indicator minerals everything was in that same sample M109 it was a very historic sample so we knew that the Kimberlite would not be too far away. Now, how far too far away was, we didn't have a clue because we'd never worked in Australian drainages before. And that was another puzzle. But nevertheless, we knew we were on to something. And I really have to say my life has never been the same since that evening of my 45th birthday. So, okay, so you're now 45. You've discovered a single diamond. But then, That's you know, right. the Ellendale mine and then subsequently the Argyle diamond mine, it, it almost is a bit of a circuitous route because it ends up largely in the hands of Rio Tinto in those days known as CRA. 
But there's a raft of different companies and organisations. I can remember Northern Mining and Reese Towie was in there. But there's other companies right. also that were, you know, partly either funding or not funding the businesses that were. It must have been a devil of a time to not only convince backers to come in and, 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 and follow this dream, but then also, once you've found it, to be able to hang on to that dream. <laughs> That's a long story, isn't it, Ross? You, you probably know a lot about it. But, of course, that first diamond was found in an Aboriginal reserve. So there was a whole another layer of complication with that. And I, I almost established a joint venture with the Aboriginal community at Umbulgari because they'd only just moved back into their land. They'd been taken away from, from Wyndham by their leader, Robert Roberts, a fine man, who thought that his people were drinking themselves to death in Wyndham, so he would take them back to the Forest River Mission where he once grew up. So that was another whole level of things and complication. And unfortunately, that although we found the Kimberlite, it was not going to be profitable. And so we had to go on. We went down, examined or assayed more, more and more samples. And of course, we then started to find interest down in the West Kimberley, in the mineragraphy and in the minerals that we collected. We started to see some interest down there in the vicinity where Rex Prider's Lucite Lamproites were. So this became a bit of an interest. And then, of course, we started to fight amongst ourselves. The fight, the one of the principal opponents was Reese, Reese Towie, who was a school a schoolmate of mine, I might say, from Guildford Grammar in West Australia, but we had to fight like tigers because he wanted to news. We didn't want anybody to know what we were up to, and so we had to buy him off almost by undertaking to, to meet his expenditure commitments. But um, nevertheless, we, we continued to go along. But finally, it got to a point where the London people were, were so fed up with me, they were so fed up with Reese. They were so fed up with everything that there was no question about it. We had to find another party to come and join us in the search and somebody that had some substance. And we were all set to do this with Pico Walzern. I had an agreement signed with, with Pico, with John Elliston, all, all ready to go. When the day the Whitlam government fell, we were having a joint venture meeting. And we'd had a lot of problems with the Whitlam government, or more with Reginald Francis Xavier Connor, who didn't like foreign money and all my... I had three of my five partners were foreign companies, like my own company, Tanganyika Holdings and London Tin Corporation and Sibeka. They were all international companies. They all had problems bringing money into Australia to make up their commitment to this joint venture. And we only had Jennings Mining and Northern, which were Australian companies, and I was a director of Northern. I mean, that was a, a part of a sort of school attachment in a sense. That all came up, and we were all going to sign the deal with Pico Walzone on the 11th of November, 1975, when Reese suddenly said, well, I'm not going to sign it. There's no way I'm going to sign it. I've been talking to John Collier of CRA, and he has indicated he could be interested, and I've got a, I've got a much better deal for you than the Pico deal. And so this was all happening, and then... Our principal problem with the composition of the joint venture that we had three overseas companies and only two local companies. But once the news came out that the Whitlam government had fell, and therefore for Reginald Francis Xavier O'Connor would not be an obstruction, we were able to go back to where I would have liked to have been because I was very good friends with Rio Tinto in London. So I knew a lot about them, but I didn't want them in this joint venture. 
when I was talking about nationalisation of Australia, to have four overseas companies and, and only two Australian companies seemed to me to be folly. So I never talked to Rod Carnegie about diamonds at all until this proposition came up from Reese that we would be able to um, get CRA to become involved. And so the deal was done. We agreed to the deal that day. We had to negotiate a bit. John Harry and I got together and wrote a document called the Ashton Joint Venture. And that meant CRA were going to put in $1.6 million for a 25% interest in the joint venture. That, as I understand it, is the key. That money allowed you to then start to go and really expand and the sandwich. really made the $1.6 million, which in fact became a 35% interest in the joint venture because John Collier more or less bought out Towie. Towie was left with, with an own, only a 5% and the other 10% that he'd had in the Plateau joint venture or the Pico joint venture. That went to CRA. We were happy. We were getting $1.6 million. The London people were not so happy that there was 35% in the hands of one company. But nevertheless, that was all A1 OK. So we now started off with the CRA team. They knew nothing about diamond or diamond exploration or very little. There was, there was only Peter Temby, who at one stage worked for Stockdale. He was able to give them some guidance. But they were perfectly happy. The deal was that we would manage or I would be manager of the joint venture, chairman of the joint venture, whatever you like to call it, till such a time as the $1.6 million had been spent, I would transfer management from Tanganyika Holdings to CRA. This was a perfectly acceptable arrangement, and we thought that this might be a couple of years, two, maybe three years out. But believe it or believe it not, very soon after the joint venture, and even before the joint venture was ink was dry, we were realizing that we had found Kimberlites. First of all, we found them in the West Kimberley. We found Kimberlites in the North, in the East, and we found Kimberlites everywhere. All we had found, when I say Kimberlites, we'd found indicators and diamonds right the way through from our first sampling program. Okay, and so thank I, you. I want to move it on from there because the one thing about uh, this yes. is at what stage, because my memory of it is when Ashton Mining was out there and CRA was in there, of course, that's Rio Tinto now. Um, but, the, right. but the whole idea of it was, in the early stages, as the as the sampling occurred and eventually as the mines were, were undertaken, that these were low-grade industrial diamonds. Now, in history tells us that the Argyle mine has been one of the great producers of high-quality pink diamonds and yellow diamonds, so coloured diamonds. At what point was there a transition from these mines being uh, producers of industrial-grade diamonds to something quite different? I could take you back to the start, because Ellendale was the first thing we found. Ellendale was found on Easter Day. We pegged Ellendale in 1976, and that subsequently became the producer of yellow diamonds. That was the feature of, of Ellendale, and we couldn't mine it. That, let me be quite clear about that. Ashton Joint Venture with CRA in charge, it was not going to be economic on our scale. So we were starting to get despondent. Then in August 1979, information started to flow back to me as the chairman of the joint venture because CRA had asked me to stay on, although I was no longer in charge. I was the chairman. The laboratory told me that they were, they'd found a number of diamonds in a creek called Smoke Creek up in the East Kimberley. And that, that was a sample again collected by Maureen Muggeridge and now her husband, John Towie. 
and as they as the results from the laboratory of her sampling in that creek started to flow in, it was patently obvious there was something at the top. And going up that creek, we eventually got to the argyle kimberlite or the argyle lamproite. It was the big producer of diamonds. It was obviously very rich to start when we first saw it. The number of diamonds in every drill intersection was high, and we eventually discovered it was a resource of about six and a half carats per ton, ten times more diamonds per ton than average kimberlites throughout the world. But when we looked at the diamonds themselves, they were very low quality. They were only worth six and a half American dollars a carat, and that was about a tenth of the average diamond price in the world. So we had something that was ten times richer, but only ten times the quality. So the revenue per tonne of rock was about average for a diamond mine. And that's what led to the creation of the Argyle mine through the financing, which was another long story in itself. But eventually we got a deal that the Australian government, much under the protest, initial protestations of Malcolm Fraser, who didn't like the idea of us having to do any sort of deal with De Beers, but the only way it would be financeable really was with a contract with De Beers. And that's another long story in itself. But nevertheless, that produced 40% of the world's natural diamonds in its heyday. 50% of the diamonds were industrial. 5% of the diamonds were gem, and 45% were what we called Indian goods or cheap gem. And those together, the combination of that gave us an average value of about $6.5 a carat. Now, that, of course, did not please Mr. Towie, who thought that we were being done by, by De Beers like a dinner. But nevertheless, that was right. He produced a chap called Albert Joris. He looked at our um, alluvial diamonds that came from Downslope Creek, and he decided that they were worth a lot more. So that was another row that went on about why Towie was always protesting that we in the hands of De Beers, because I'd been a director on the company in Africa with Harry Oppenheimer, he was convinced I was a sort of De Beers plant <laughs> in this whole thing. So it became... Quite interesting, but nevertheless, that Argyle mine, because it had such a huge production, and as you rightly pointed out, it's the amount of pink diamonds in it was very low in percentage terms, but in terms of, of aggregate of production, it was very large, which is why it has become known as the world's biggest and best pink diamond producer. And of course, everybody has now got their knickers in a knot because when Argyle closes, Pink diamonds will dry up. So pink diamonds are now commanding an enormous premium. An enormous premium they are. You and I mean, Australia has only ever had three diamond mines. You've been That's associated right. with each of those three diamond mines. Are there, more, are, are there potentially more diamondiferous areas out there to be to be found? Do you think? Uh, uh, that's why why I, a stupid old fool that I am, I'm engaged in a diamond search with an unlisted company called Geocrystal in Western Australia, where we have, we believe, 300 kimberlite pipes with uh, micro-diamonds sitting on top of of this sort of general area. We've drilled 50 of them, and they are kimberlites, they're dinkum kimberlites, but we've we've not found one, and and that doesn't surprise us. But, I mean, it's a lot for a small company to be financing, and we've so far failed to find a big brother, but there is a job there. And I always say to people in the in the days of the old Soviet Union, 
every one of these pipes would have been drilled out, and we've been stuffing around for now for probably three years. It's incredible that at the age of 92, clearly you haven't lost the passion. You've still got plenty of energy about this. I mean, it is something that obviously has been the overwhelming feature of your life, and it's something that you have not let go, even as you got older. (laughs) That's, That's the crazy part of it. That's why people must think I'm as mad as a March hare, because nobody in their right mind... Hey, I always, when I was chairman of Lion Selection Group, which I was for many years, I wouldn't allow them to look for diamonds, because diamonds is only a, a, a sort of activity reserved solely for fools. And nobody in their right mind ever goes about searching for diamonds, because it, the, long, the odds are so against you being successful. But nevertheless, I regard, as, as a nation, we are big believers in horse racing and the odds I think are about the same as picking a winner on a horse race as finding a diamond mine you know that's how I look at it we've, we've found three diamond mines in Australia the Merlin diamond mine in the Northern Territory has produced the biggest diamond ever found in Australia 104 carat gem and it's produced some of the most beautiful stones they're the, they're the clear white stones that go with Merlin but Merlin is is now in the hands of the receiver, I think. I don't know what's happened over there. I, I, th- I think that there's a job there for somebody to actually go and do some serious work. You, you've been a man who has searched for diamonds, who has discovered diamonds and, and, and diamond mines. What about diamonds themselves as an investment? How would you consider diamonds as an investment? Well, I, I have never been a, a believer in investing in, in diamonds, no. I didn't encourage people to buy diamonds as an investment. I was very wrong in this regard, but I was always very impressed with the first of the pink diamonds, and I really had to believe that they would be worth something quite spectacular. And for that reason, I bought myself, or for my wife, a pair of small one-carat rough diamonds. I bought them from our diamond dealer in Antwerp, they were Argyle diamonds, and I carried them around in my pocket for years and used to show them to people when they wanted to know what rough diamonds looked like. I had a couple of pieces of Argyle five-carat rough, which you could roll out on the table at lunch, and I had these much smaller one-carat pieces of pink. And I, you know, eventually I had those cut and polished by Gary Holloway's advice. He said, you should, you should, you're crazy keeping these pieces of rough in your pocket. You'll die with them in your pocket. Why don't we get them polished? And so they did. And I got them cut and polished. more. Gary did in India. Break up into about 0.3.4 carat stones. But they're beautiful. And I can't believe what they were worth. And I got them more back from the setter more or less the day my wife died in last year, in 2019. So she never actually saw these two pink diamonds um, made up for her. What an astonishing story. It really is. Well, I've got to say, look, can I just say, the story that you have got is is going to be told in a book that's coming out, which is called Argyle, The Impossible Mine by Stuart Kells. And I can only encourage people to go and have a look at that because this is a life lived rich and and certainly it's uh, experienced some astonishing, well, not only, as we've heard, the disputes that have gone along the way in trying to finance and to own and manage these mines, but also to have the endeavour to be able to find them in such remote country in the very first place. Ewan Tyler has been awarded the Order of Australia for very good reason. He's one of the great legends of exploration in Australia and especially in the diamond industry. And Ewan Tyler, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Ross. It's been fun.
Thanks so much for your company today. I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Shame break like a diamond.